Good morning, everyone. I apologize for not wearing a tie or a suit this morning to distinguish me as a preacher. I wanted to go incognito, under the radar, you know. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, you might have seen these pictures sometime before, previous times I've presented. These are pictures of the day after our wedding, speaking of weddings, just going to steal the focus a bit here. No, just kidding. Um, this is the day after our wedding, and I just wanted to share a bit about some of the cultural aspects of, of a wedding in Zambia. Um, I proposed to Chichi in December of 2014, and in August 2015, I went to, I had to go to negotiate a bridal price with her parents and make it official um, in order to be able to, to marry Chi-Chi. And so the way it works is that I had to bring a whole bunch of people with me who know me pretty well. Some of these were elders from uh, the assembly I grew up in, others just people that knew me pretty well. And you bring these people, and Chi-Chi's parents have their people, relatives, and stuff like that. And so you take your people with you, and as the groom-to-be, you don't do any of the negotiating yourself. It's all the people that you bring with you. And so what happened, and you can see Chi-Chi's home kind of in the background there, or her parents' home, rather. They, we went in, and they sat me right in the middle of their couch, and on either side were these two humongous dudes right on either side of me. And I'm looking up and thinking, oh man, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> so anyways, the, the negotiations go on and they're talking and they had to bring Chi-Chi out and just to confirm that she's the one that I'm negotiating for. And um, then, and she had to agree to the whole whole process as well. Finally, once the negotiating was all done, you, um, you put a little, just kind of like a little down payment, a little cash in, into a bowl and put a lid on top of it and you hand it to the parents. And that is called yujikamuchisu, which means closing the door. And what that means is that basically the parents won't consider any other guy for their daughter. I'm the one. <laughs> and so that, that's how that worked. And then that was August. Then fast forward to, to December 2015. We were married, and marriage ceremonies in Zambia are an all-day event, basically. We started at 10 and went all the way to like 6 or 7 p.m. And so it's an all-day event. The day after, you don't get to go straight to your honeymoon. The ladies of the assembly slash community, they have to get together with the new bride and teach her how to cook. Now, you know, that's kind of the reason why, one of the reasons why I married her is because of cooking. But, you know, just tradition and stuff, have to teach her how to cook so she can please her new husband and stuff like that. And so here in the picture you can see them. they make a really big meal that's a big part of what's caught in shima. It looks like mashed potatoes, but it's a lot thicker, and you can hold it with your hands easily. And um, 
and you just make a little ball and eat it with different condiments. And so they make a huge meal, and then we all, afterwards, when it was done, she called me up saying, which means the food is now ready. And we went in and, and ate. The reason why I'm talking about all this is because in order to, if I wanted Chi Chi to be my wife, I had to follow those cultural procedures, if you will. And a lot of Americans think, um, or they view like, oh, you're negotiating a bridal price for a bride. It's like you're treating her like an object. But in, from a Zamian perspective, she's a very valuable member of the family. And you taking her away from us is like, could cause some hardships and stuff. And so it's just uh, it's a different way of valuing the bride. Um, but the reason why I say that is that if I did not go through those different cultural procedures, Chi Chi might not be my wife today. We, we might not be married. And so in order to, to get her, I had to go through, through all those, those issues. I've been thinking a lot, especially with going to Zambia, about culture and how to effectively share the gospel in culture, whether that's the Zambian culture when we go over there, or even our own personal culture here in the States. And so I titled this, In the World, and you've probably heard this phrase before, in the world but not of the world. And I've added a little line, rather sent to the world. And I'll explain later on why I've added that little part, rather sent to the world, subtitled The Gospel and My Culture. And if we could just start off by looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. Colossians 3, verses 9 to 11. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and is in all. The main point from these verses that I want to pick out is the fact of, first of all, who we are, our new identity in Christ. And that is, you know, he talks about being a new man, renewed in the knowledge according to the image of God who created us. When Adam and Eve sinned, that image of God was marred. But now that we are in Christ, we are given that new image. We are a new creation in Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But in Christ, all the distinctions, all the divisions, all the animosity between people is disappeared. You'll notice in verse 11 where it says, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and is in all. And the thing about the gospel is that despite cultural backgrounds, despite national backgrounds, despite whatever skin color or whatever, the gospel transcends all of those things. Our position in Christ, who we are as a new creature in Christ, transcends all of those other 
backgrounds that we are that we have. And so God gives us three instructions to effectively be a light for the gospel in our cultures. What are these three instructions? First, we are to know our true identity within culture. Second, we are to follow Christ over culture. And third, we are to witness effectively to culture. So let's start by looking at our true identity within culture at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And I'm just going to be going through these verses fairly quickly. Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God, in the world. So in this passage, Paul is first reminding the Ephesian believers of their former identity, that of alienation. What are they alienated for? You can see from the diagram that they are alienated um, from Jews. They were Gentile believers. And before, they were alienated from Jews. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, as it says. And you, if you remember from the Old Testament, God made us a, a distinction between Jew and Gentile. This was a division, a distinction that God himself made. And while Jew and, both Jew and Gentile could both be saved, even those that were saved, there was still a distinction between them. Gentile believers, or Gentiles that were saved, could only come so far into the temple. Even they had to remain out in the outer court. They could not come as far as the Jews. And even within the Jews themselves, the regular Jewish people could not come as far as like the high priests, etc. But especially Gentiles, even though if they were saved or whatever, and there were Gentile believers, they could not come as far as the Jews within the temple. But not only was there that distinction between Jew and Gentile, there was a distinction or between Gentile and God. They were alienated from God himself, most importantly. Saying in verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. And this is our former position for all of us who are believers. This is the current position of all those outside who are not saved. Alienated from God and, and really fundamentally alienated from from one another. Because if you don't have peace with God, how can you truly have peace with, with your fellow brother? But moving on, something amazing has happened. And the context here, the, the previous verses in verses 1 to 10, it's all about how we are reconciled to God by his grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. What happens, and we'll look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who, were once, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is 
the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So what has happened here is that through Christ, we who once were alienated from each other can have peace first and foremost with God himself in a new man, which is the body also known as the church, the body of Christ, where there is Jew and Gentile. And so within the church itself, there is no need for any kind of animosity which might previously once have existed. Whether it's animosity between people of different skin colors, animosity between people of different backgrounds, different former religions, whatever the background is, there is no distinction, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is very important to understand, whereas in the Old Testament you had the two groups, Jew and Gentile, in the New Testament you have a third one added, and that is the church. It is something brand new, as in verse 15 so as to create in himself one new man from the two. The church is not a replacement of Israel. It does not, um, it's not a continuation of Israel or anything like that. It is something brand new that God decided to start off through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus. And within that, we're all united. Whether sometimes we don't act like that, we don't act like, just like any family, we can have problems, but we're all united in Christ. And it is amazing. You can go to Zambia, you can go to China, you can come here and meet with different brothers and sisters, and even though you may not have seen them or met them before, you have that fellowship that is in, within the Lord Jesus Christ, being united in him. And this is our primary identity. This transcends all culture national boundaries, etc. And finally, identity of integration. Verse 19 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so you'll notice the church is built on the foundation. That is the apostles and prophets with Christ being the, the cornerstone. And there's a lot of guys going around saying, oh, I'm apostle so-and-so and a prophet so-and-so. But the fact is the foundation has been built already. And when a bu- you're building a building, you don't keep building the foundation over and over and over again. You build the foundation once, and then you keep building uh, the walls and, and everything else. And, and so we have the foundation with us still to this day. It's right here, God's word, which, which he used these apostles and prophets to, to write. And they, he used them to set up the church 2,000 years ago. But within this one body, you'll notice these descriptions that it uses for us. In verse 19, causes us to be fellow citizens 
Heaven is our primary citizenship. It's our ultimate one. And we're going back there one day. It calls us to be members of the family of God. We're a family. And we are also built together in Christ Jesus in verse 21. So, you know, the foundation's already laid. And I might be maybe this piece of drywall over here. You might be this light bulb <laughs> hanging here. And I don't know how close we are getting to the top, but I think we're getting pretty close to the completion, and Christ is going to come back soon for us. Um, when I was in Zambia getting ready for her wedding, uh, Chichi and her mom had gone to a tailor to get some dresses made, and I was with my future father-in-law at that time in the car. We had gone to pick them up, and I was sitting in the passenger seat, and I noticed out the window some boys just a little distance away, and they were pointing at me and talking. And I didn't know what they were saying because I didn't speak that language. But I, I understood one word. And they were pointing at me, and they were saying, Choncholi, Choncholi. And I know what the word Choncholi means. They were saying that, oh, this guy is a Chinese man. And that's what my father-in-law said. Oh, he's like, oh, Sonny, they think that you're a Chinese man. So I'm like, yeah, I don't know, because, you know, my hair is so black and got squinty eyes and whatever. But anyways, uh, so I rolled the window down, and I looked at them, and I greeted them and said, oh, mudingahimwani, because most, most people there know, like, six languages or so, so I assumed they would know my language. <laughs> so I greeted them, and they're, oh, it's muzungu, and they ran away. That is, oh, he's a white person, and they, they ran away, because... Most Chinese people who come, they, they don't bother to try to learn the local language and whatever. The point that I'm getting at is that, let's say I actually was a Chinese person. Let's say, if you will, I was born again into a Chinese family. I might still have some habits um, being, you know, in a, an American family or whatever you want to call my family. <laughs> Um, I might still have some habits or whatever, but my new identity is that as a Chinese man. And you start to learn and to grow and think the way the Chinese people think. And this is what has happened to us as believers. We've been born again into the family of God. And that is our primary identity. And we still have some habits and stuff from our old sinful uh, family, if you will. But our primary identity is Christ. And so... What is God saying to you based off of this passage? Do you understand your primary identity? And do you rejoice in the new identity you have as members as the body of Christ? How do you view and treat others, especially fellow believers, regardless of their cultural background? And is there a brother and sister that you might need to be reconciled with, practically speaking? Moving on, we are to follow Christ. Because Christ is our primary identity, we are to follow him over culture. Let's turn to John 17, verses 11 to 18. In verse 11, it says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are one. This is the Lord Jesus' prayer right before he's taken to be crucified and is praying to his Father in heaven. He's praying about his disciples. And he specifically says that 
I am no longer in the world. He was about to be crucified. He was about to go to his heavenly, be ascended to his heavenly father. But he says, these are in the world. Now, this in the world, it primarily refers to our location, where we are. We're in the world. And being in the world, we have, depending where you are in the world, you have certain culture that affects you. You grow up in in an American culture, that culture affects who you are. Depending where you are, what language they speak, that affects who you are as well. And so we are in the world, and we have all these cultural influences that affect us, and we cannot change that. That's just a, a fact of reality. But the issue is we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Verse, skip to verse 14. Christ continues his prayer, I have given them, that's the disciples, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so, though we live in the world, though we are affected by the culture, whatever culture is around us, we are not of the world. And that would primarily refer to our worldview. We we don't conform to the culture in terms of their beliefs and their moral behavior. We have a new identity in Christ. We have a new um, family. And when it comes to the sinful aspects of whatever culture we happen to be living in, we do not conform to that, that part of that culture. Christ says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is true. Sanctify means to set apart, to be different. And the issue is that if there is no difference between us and the culture around us, specifically in terms of beliefs and moral behavior, then what is the point? What is the point of sharing the gospel? Be, their attitude could very well just be like, oh, there's no difference between you and me. Why should I listen to what you're saying? We're, just, we're exactly the same. And so while we're in the culture, we live and are affected by the culture. We don't conform to it by our beliefs and moral behavior. And uh, you think especially in our own culture today, with things like um, homosexuality, the LGBTQ, really being pushed on our culture. And so many churches and believers have, have given into that. And while we want to be loving and be gracious to those who have gone into that kind of lifestyle, we want to share the love of, that, of Christ to them, that's an issue that we cannot conform to, that we cannot agree or promote. This is just one example within our own, our own culture. And so while we're in the world but not of the world, rather we are sent to the world. Why did Christ leave us here? We're not just simply in the world to merely exist, but we are here because Christ has sent us here to make an impact, to share the gospel with so many people who need, who need to hear it. In verse 18, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Christ was sent into the world, John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And it's the same with us. 
God has left us in this world to make an impact. Why did he not just rapture us right away the moment we were saved? He left us in here to, um, to be lights for the gospel here. I love what Hudson Taylor said, the missionary to China in the 1800s. And in those days, a lot of missionaries even there were kind of um, racist or whatever. They looked down on the Chinese people. And, but he was very different, and he said this, And why should such a foreign aspect be given to Christianity? The word of God does not require it, nor I conceive could sound reason justify it. It is not the denationalization, but the Christianization of this people that we seek. We wish to see Chinese Christians raised and men and women truly Christian, but withal truly Chinese in every sense of the word. We wish to see churches of such believers presided over by pastors and officers of their own countrymen, worshiping God in the land of their fathers, in their own tongue, and in edifices of a thoroughly native style of architecture. Let us, in everything not sinful, become Chinese, that we may by all means save some. So what is God saying to you based off of this passage? Are you in some way integrating with the culture? Have you unnecessarily separated yourself from the culture on the, on the one hand? On the other hand, have you let the culture influence you too much? Is there some sinful part of culture that is pressuring you to conform sinfully? Are you being a light for the gospel? Is there someone you need to share the gospel with that you can think of specifically. Moving on, we are to also witness to culture effectively. And we'll finish this off by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 19. Sorry, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 27. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, Paul says, For that, though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. You really see Paul's heart here. He wanted to do all that he could to reach people with the gospel. If it means becoming like a Jew, I would become like a Jew. If it means becoming like a Gentile, like a Gentile. And you see him doing that, and we'll see an example here shortly. But the reason why he would do that is for the sake of the gospel. As it says in verse 23, I do this for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. At Tepsi, we like to, to say when sharing the gospel, you take them from what they know to what they don't know. And this is what Paul would do. He would take them, depending on their culture or whatever, from what they know and to what they don't know. And that is the gospel primarily that they might be saved. And we see several examples of this. First, we see Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel has a, this amazing vision of God, and he's overwhelmed by that vision. And in verse 15, it says that he sat where they sat, that is the other captives of Judah. 
sat where they sat and remained overwhelmed among them. And why is it? First, because I think of the great vision he saw of God. But secondly, he was overwhelmed because he saw the distressful situation that the other captives of Judah were in, having been taken captive by Babylon, living in poverty, etc. And before he does any ministry, he sits where they sat and he observes to see how they are living. What are they struggling with? What sin is separating them from from the, the Lord? And so that's Ezekiel. But also Paul in Acts 17, Paul goes throughout the city and he sees all these different idols, and he sees an altar to the unknown God. And when he preaches his sermon, he says, I notice that you are very religious, and that you had an altar to the unknown God. It is him that I want to proclaim to you. Later he goes and he quotes one of their poets, and eventually he gets to the gospel of Christ. And you can see how he takes them from what they knew. They were very religious and had so many gods, and they thought, well, what if we're missing one? What if one is being left out? So they add an altar to the unknown God, and that's actually a picture of an altar to an unknown God that they dug up in the Mediterranean area. But he took them from that to the God who created everything. He's not an idol. He's not made with something by hands. He created all things, and he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, who came and died for their sins. And you can just, it's a beautiful picture of how Paul took them from what they knew to what they did not know. And finally, we just want to finish off here that we are to run to win the prize. Verse 25, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now this they do to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul wanted to discipline himself, whether it means disciplining yourself to to get to know the culture, get to know the people there, whether it's discipline in terms of your own personal relationship with the Lord, whether it it could even be physical discipline so that you're you're taking care of your body to be able to do the ministry that God wants you to do. Or it could be mental, knowing the word of God, getting to know it inside and out. And it's just, it's very important. And it's discipline because there's a crown of righteousness waiting for us one day when we get to heaven, as it says in verse 25. And when I was a Tepsi student, we went to New York City to Washington Square Park. And I remember Chris pointing out to us, he said, look over there, you see the Hindus. There you see the New Agers. Here you see the Hare Krishnas. Here you see the Orthodox Jews, and etc., etc. And then he read Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. And that's not just true about Paul's day. It's true of our day. Wherever you are, People have rejected the one true God. They've gone after their own desires, other gods, or maybe they've made themselves God. And they've gone after all these things, but God has left us here within our own cultural context to share the gospel with, with people and get them into relationship with the one true God. And so what is God saying to you based off of this passage? 
What are we doing to reach people for Christ? Are we blooming where we are planted, whether that's a work or neighborhood or whatever? And if the Lord calls you somewhere else, then you go and bloom there. Is there someone you need to share Christ with? Do we have compassion for those given over to false beliefs? And do we have an eternal perspective? Don Richardson was a missionary in Papua New Guinea, and there were two tribes there that he was trying to share Christ with. These two tribes had, they were very um, animistic or had animosity one towards the other, and they hated each other. And one of the greatest cultural beliefs was that of betrayal. They highly esteemed deception and betrayal. So much so that when Don shared the gospel with them, they viewed Judas as being the hero and not Jesus Christ. And they, I mean, these guys kept fighting each other. Finally, Don Richardson was just like, okay, I'm giving up. I'm going back home. But they, both tribes didn't want him to go back home, so they did what they called the peace child where the chiefs of each tribe would give their oldest son to be the son of the other chief. And that is how they made peace one with the other. And he's like, Don was like, oh, this is what God did for us. He sent his son to be the peace child for us. And that is how he brought the gospel to that culture. And so what, what about us? How can we make an influence within our own culture or whatever culture um, the Lord happens to take us to. I'm going to ask Josh now to come up. He's going to 